Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I'm joined by a special guest to help us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And it's wonderful to have with us this week Professor Joel Hecker, who is Professor of Jewish Mysticism at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. He received his PhD in Judaic studies from NYU in 1996, and also his rabbinic ordination and an MA in Jewish philosophy from Yeshiva University slightly earlier than that. He's the author of volumes 11, and also with Nathan Wolski, volume 12 of the Zohar, the wonderful and renowned Pritzker edition, and is also the author of Mystical Bodies, Mystical Meals, Eating and Embodiment in Medieval Kabbalah. And we look forward to perhaps discussing some of that and suddenly eating as we journey through Bashalach, but particularly a focus that we want to have around manna. What is it according to the Torah and how was it received? So the the manna is one of the many miracles that it occurs for the for the Jewish people in Sefer Shmot in the book of Exodus. And um the people as they are want to do or is that they are starting to want to do are complaining about the lack of food and God says chill out I'm gonna I'm gonna provide bread for you from the heaven and and then, and it goes on to, the Torah goes on to talk about in chapter 15 of Exodus, verses 13 to 15, about how there was this miraculous material that, that came, sorry, chapter 16, not 15, um, that was falling from the sky. And it says, God says to Moshe, I will rain down bread for you from the sky, and the people shall go out and gather each day that day's portion. In the morning, there was a fall of dew about the camp when the layer of dew lifted. And look, on the surface of the wilderness lay a fine and flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? They said, manhu. Even the words there are a little bit unclear. But they did not know what it was. And Moshe said to them, that is the bread which Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey has given you to eat. And so that's one description. That's the biggest description that we get in the Torah. There's a brief description in Sefer Bamidbar in the book of Numbers where the Jewish people start bellyaching, I guess, uh, pardon the pun, about how boring these this food is. It's like they've been eating the same stuff for 40 years. And trying to understand what it is exactly is it's not clear in, in, in the book of Exodus. It's, its taste is described as being like a sweet wafer. And in the book of Numbers, it's described as lit shemen, which, according to different translations, the New Jewish Publication Society, it's rich cream. The Revised Standard Version, it's an oily cake. Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, it's butter cake. 
So it's not clear exactly what this stuff is. It certainly sounds like comfort food of one kind or another. And then more in more exalted terms, in the book of Tehillim, in Sefer Tehillim, in book of the Psalms, chapter 78, 25, it's described as Lechem Avirim. So Lechem Avirim has been translated in various ways. It is probably most accurately translated as something like a hero's meal or princely bread or bread of the mighty. But there's a bunch of translations that translate it as the bread of angels. That here is this food that has come from above and it has this kind of exalted status. Thank you for that all-encapsulating survey. I just wonder whether there are any other equivalents in ancient Near Eastern literature that that hones in on 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 something like it. Yeah. So in the so I'm a medievalist, but in the biblical scholarship that I looked at, nobody refers to ancient Near East tales of this kind of miraculous food. That said, however, there is a biological phenomenon in the Sinai Desert of a kind of honeydew. And by that, I don't mean the melon. I don't know what you call it where you live. All good. The English translates it as the Atlantic. We're on the same page. Okay, great. So it's not that kind of honeydew. But rather, it, it's used to refer to a, a kind of a sticky or sweet substance that's produced by the secretions of scaly insects and plant lice. And what happens is that these kinds of insects, I can give you the technical terms of these insects, they're Trabutina manipara e and Najcocus serpentinus g. These are insects that actually live in the Sinai Peninsula today. And they live on, they infest the tamarisk plant. And so they grow on these tamarisk plants or tamarisk trees. And the, these plants apparently are rich in carbohydrates. And then these insects secrete some kind of sticky stuff and onto the twigs of this plant. And then they drop in these like globs onto the ground. Now, this doesn't sound, this stuff coming out of insects doesn't sound so delicious, but Apparently, it's quite edible. Apparently, in any given year, there's about five to 600 pounds of this stuff that gets produced in the Sinai Desert. And <clears throat> it would appear that might be the actual fuller historical basis for the description of the miracles that take place in the Torah. Now, five to 600 pounds is not going to feed a whole nation for 40 years. but And that's where the Torah adapts it. And the, and the Torah tells about the miraculous nature of this of this food that's there all year round and that there was enough for everybody to eat and that it fell every day. It would appear that there's, there may be some scientific basis for this, if not for the quite as large as, as the Torah claims. So from the scientific then perhaps to the allegorical metaphorical, um, what are the, perhaps you might share the way in which, allegorically the manner has been understood and obviously it's probably got a huge kind of evolution in in that way and wonder if you could take us from the text through later periods of understanding yeah for sure 
Before I do, I just want to suggest one other interpretation that's a little, it's a little bit out there about the about the manna, but there was a book written by Ann Merker called The Mystery of Manna, the Psychedelic Sacraments of the Bible. And this does not get supported in mainstream scholarly literature, but what Merker and others have suggested is that this event takes place, the first time the manna appears, or that they start to be, they were told about the manna, is several days out from Egypt. And apparently there's a certain kind of mold that can grow on on wheat. And that if you consume that mold, it can have the side effects of hallucinogenic experiences. And when you look at the biblical passage in which it talks about the Israelites eating the manna, it says first, they saw the glory of God, and then the manna, and then they got the manna. And so Merker suggests that they were like, that they were tripping. That what had happened is that they had taken all of this wheat from the, from Pharaoh's storehouses, and they had eaten some of this moldy wheat, and then they were having hallucinogenic experiences. At any rate. That was the dimension I didn't think we'd touch upon, but from the scientific to the psychedelic. And thank you for sharing that possibility. For sure. So in some of the earliest Jewish interpretations, we see that there is a a move away from a literal interpretation towards allegorical interpretations of the manna. Philo of Alexandria, who is the, the first and most important person to most important early persons use allegory as a way of interpreting Torah. And Philo lives from around the year 25 before the Common Era until the year 50 of the Common Era. So he says, this isn't, what it's talking about is it's talking about wisdom, that what the Israelites were gaining for 40 years is there they are, they're like, oh, they're sitting in Kolal for 40 years. They're sitting and they're isolated and they are able to benefit directly from uh, from God. And it's wisdom that they are that they are getting. And we'll see later in our conversation when we talk to the Kabbalists, that the Kabbalists are also going to think about man in terms of wisdom, but they're going to talk about it symbolically rather than allegorically. And I'll elaborate on that distinction shortly. Where you also find this being treated in a somewhat allegorical way, is in the Midrash and the Mechilta on chapter 13, verse 17. It says that what God was doing is God brings them out into the Israelites out into the desert. And it says, I will cause them to go about in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Mechilta. So that they may eat the manna, drink the water of the well, and the Torah will be assimilated into their bodies. So in other words, there's something about this manna that is as a certain kind of magical, it's not. this is not allegorical, it's more a kind of a magical property, and perhaps even a precursor to mystical interpretations, that somehow there's something transformative. This manna and this water that they're getting are not only what they seem to be. And, and similarly, from a little bit earlier, this is Hellenistic, and whether you want to call this Jewish or not depends on how you want to read the history. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus contrasts himself with the manna, and he offers there, he offers true life. So he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, wherever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He contrasts that with the manna. He says, they ate the manna and they died. But those that are going to eat me, that he is going to be like a kind of a new manna, 
as, as it were. And so there, too, we're getting the sense that what manna can refer to, or some kind of nourishment that's coming from heaven, is something other than simply some kind of strange, miraculous food. So that's what we see in terms of allegorical interpretations. And I can proceed to talk about some of the ways that the rabbis talk about the manna. Yeah, please. How does that change and evolve? So among the things that the rabbis talk about, they really embroider upon the nature of the manna. And they say, oh, it would have any kind of taste that people would want. So it would taste like candy for children and it would have soft food for the elderly And not only that, it's that there's a way in which this manna would be absorbed into their limbs. Again, that it has this certain kind of transformative, this is in the Mechelta of all, that it's going to be absorbed into their their limbs. So on that verse from uh, Psalms, where it says that they were given lechem avirim, the Mechelta says, don't read it as avirim, but rather avarim, as not as angels or nobles, but rather as limbs, so that what you're going to be getting is going to be absorbed into your limbs, into your body. And then Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the, the ancient rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, um, on the basis of that same interpretation says that, quote, only to those who eat manna is it given really to study the Torah. Like them are those who eat truma. So forgetting what you know, forgetting about the comparison to Truma for a moment, the main thing to be noticing here, I think, is that there was something about being in the desert, in that proximity to divinity, uh, about the what the manna is signifying is a closeness to God that enables absorption of Torah and absorption in a way that's personally and physically transformative that's very different than the mere sort of cognitive learning that that is that that we might be doing today and then maybe fast forwarding a little bit further how does the zohar understand manna and how much of a dramatic evolution again is that from what has come before in the midrashic or allegorical notions one of the things that happens between the time of the rabbis and the time of the Zohar and the Kabbalists is that Jews have started to study philosophy. And it's not only Sa'ad Yaga'on and Yudha Levi and, and the Rambam, but the Kabbalists too have been, early medieval Kabbalists have been trained philosophically. And once you start, once they became exposed to the systematic philosophical questions that medieval philosophy was posing, they wanted to ask, they needed to answer the question, how do we account for the gap between an infinite God and finite human beings? How is it possible for a transcendent deity to be connected to mortals such as ourselves? And that basic question has ramifications for thinking about creation, providence, miracles, and such like. But for our topic today, the reason that it's significant is that we need to know, how is it possible for something to come from heaven, to come from God, and reach human beings? If God's utterly transcendent, what's going to be the ladder or the the ladder of descent that 
will allow for something that's coming from God who is utterly ethereal to come down in material form. And the medieval interpretations of Neoplatonism came and were very successful in solving this dilemma, not only for Judaism, but also first for Islam and then later for Christianity. So to focus on the manna in the Zohar, what takes place here is first the Zohar takes a close look at this verse that says, Behold, I am going to cause to rain down from you bread from the heavens. Now, the Kabbalists don't treat any word in the Torah as innocent. They treat every word as somehow symbolic of either divinity itself or of the way in which we interact with God. And so that the word shamayim comes to refer to a particular rung within God's being, as it were. That the system that the Kabbalists developed of Sfirot, of a series of rungs, was trying to account for how we get from the transcendence to something that is more imminent, to the God that we experience in our own spiritual lives. So when they first come out of Egypt, the Zohar explains, and they're eating matzah, that's connection with the Shekhinah. Shekhinah is the, the feminine presence of God, the aspect of God that is closest to us, the one that we experience when we see the beauty in the world around us. But then the, the Zohar and the Kabbalists teach there's a higher rank, there's a higher way to experience God, and that's from Shemaim. Shemaim refers to a sphira called Tiferet, which the Kabbalists understand as the masculine aspect. And so what happens is that they graduate, as it were, from the matzah, which corresponds to Shekinah, to the manna, which corresponds to Tiferet. So that's one very interesting piece that they do, that they move that they make. Another one, though, and here I just want to read you a short paragraph. This is from part two, folio 62b to 63a in the Zohar. It says, all those scions of faith, meaning all of those, those nobles, of those uh, leaders of faith, went out and gathered and blessed the supernal name over the manna. That manna emitted a fragrance like all the spices of the Garden of Eden, since the manna had flowed through there in descending. Once they placed it in front of them, they tasted whatever taste they desired and blessed the supernal king. Then it was blessed in each one's belly. And he would contemplate and know above, gazing upon divine wisdom. Here in three sentences, four sentences, we have this remarkable depiction of a process that takes place in the encounter with, the eating of, the response to, and the effects of eating the manna. So first it says they went out and they said a bracha. They say a blessing over the manna. And then what happens is that there's a fragrance that comes out because the manna had descended, as it were, from Shemayim, from the heavens, passed through this Garden of Eden, picking up various kinds of aromatics. And they taste it, and then they say a blessing after it. So what's happened then is they've got this stuff that's come down from God. They've taken it into their bodies. They have then said a blessing, in other words, that they have sent words back up to God. And then the Zohar says, it was blessed in each one's belly. So there's a kind of a reciprocal blessing that takes place. We send a blessing up, God sends a blessing down, and there's a blessing that then occurs within their bodies themselves. And what would happen then 
is the person would contemplate and know above gazing upon divine wisdom is that they would get divine wisdom so that in effect what's happening is that through a a spiritual encounter with this miraculous food they were blessed within their bodies and they were able to have special mystical insight thank you we've certainly gone off on all sorts of wonderful tangents i wonder and this is maybe coming back to your book and interest in eating and the spiritual potential for that but i wonder if you might maybe share how we connect with manna and its potential for transformation of how we see food and the eating process today so the already established by the rabbis in the mission and the talmud was a notion that one has to approach food with the awareness that food has come from god that we should be thanking god for food and so they set up a whole regimen of things to be recited before blessings to be recited after eating and drinking what the Kabbalists did, though, because they were operating with a notion that somehow God's being actually pervades reality. And so that as a result, one shouldn't just be saying the mindfulness that one should be bringing when one's eating is not simply being aware that the food is coming from God. But if God created the world with speech, that somehow God's words constructed the world. That if the speech is not just from God, but actually of God, and that it is through the words that are coming from God that, you know, where is it? Here's a water bottle, right? So the words that created the, this water that came from God's mouth, that somehow there's something of God that's actually in this water that I can actually partake of. And so that with the Kabbalists were advocating, and this becomes really a very prominent theme in Hasidic thought is that it's possible to be encountering God every time that we're eating, every time that we're drinking. And in fact, it's it becomes this the doctrine of Adabagashmiut in Hasidic literature of worship through material reality is one in which there's one focuses inten- intensely upon the food that one is going to be eating with the recognition that somehow there's holiness that's within the food and that when we're going to be eating, we were not only imbibing the carbs and the protein and the fats and the sugars and whatever, but we're actually imbibing holiness itself. And that with that consciousness that's come, the consciousness that we summon ourselves, that we are then able to have a a powerful experience of God and be more directly connected to God. So specifically, there's a wonderful teaching in the work by Chernobyl, the the first key of the Chernobyl dynasty. This is back in the early 1800s. Talks about how, about food, about God's speaking reality into being, speaking material reality into being, how we consume it, and that by saying a blessing over it, we then participate in a kind of a spiritual ecosystem. Spirituality has come down, 
we send a blessing back up. But in the course of it, there's a circuit of holiness, a, of sparks of holiness that came down into the world and that we then send back up. And this is something that's practiced today, not only by, by Hasidim, but by other Jewish spiritual seekers that are trying to, to connect to a Kodesh Baruch connect to God. Thank you for sharing a truly full gamut of possibilities and feeding the mind and the soul with that and all those wonderful connections too. So, Professor Hecker, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure and uh, I'm pleased to have been able to join you today. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Do, of course, check out more of our exciting content we have for you at jewishquest.org. And we do look forward to meeting again next week. Mm -hmm.